Americans have to understand that this game has always been and will always be about buckets. podcast we talk about basketball all things basketball today is november 30th it is about 5 15 p.m today i'm joined by my father jason unger in omaha nebraska how are you doing jason doing good man doing good survive the uh survive the thanksgiving holiday and and officially i guess uh ready to get back to work yep we took last week off we're back at it this week uh we figured that it'd be better just to take a week off and be with our families and enjoy the break. And especially Sam was back in Nebraska with his family. So we didn't really have a lot of time to get one done, but we're back. And uh, I also mentioned Sam. So Sam is down in Waco, Texas. How are you doing, Sam? Um, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it was a, I definitely enjoyed having a week off everything. I, I needed that pretty badly. It's been not like a rough semester or anything, but it's definitely been a long one. Um, and I really enjoyed pretty much doing nothing for five or six days in there. Yep, so we're going to start the episode off on a, a sad note for you, Sam. Baylor was outscored by Marquette 51-25 to in the first half of their game. Was that yesterday? Yeah, that was last night. As promised, we always start off the episode covering the Baylor men's basketball team. So, Sam, break it down. Yeah, um, way too many turnovers right off the bat. I mean, when I... I uh, didn't get a chance to watch the first half of the game. I had a chance to watch the second half and then saw the score and chose not to subject myself to it. I'm like, yeah, I'll, look, I'll look at the breakdown later. Uh, but first half turnovers, like with four minutes left, Baylor was already at 11. Marquette had like two. Um, anytime a team gets nine extra possessions, especially in the slower paced, um, less time to play college basketball, you are in trouble. Um, also allowed Marquette to shoot 48% from three. They were 12 for 25. Baylor didn't shoot poorly by any means. I mean, when, when they managed to get a shot up, there were good possessions. They just couldn't get shots up. Um, and then by the time the second half rolled around, it, it was already a done deal. Um, also, Flo Thamba, Baylor's starting center, uh, played for 22 minutes and had one point. Um, and not that they expect him to do a lot of scoring, but if you're a starting center to have one point and three rebounds in 22 minutes is is a bit rough. No, so there's there's a lot of time to figure stuff out. This is a new team with a lot of new faces, uh, not not over or anything by any means, um, but definitely not what you'd want to see. They've had a rough stretch of the last three games, including a loss to Virginia, where they Virginia also put on a huge run. Um, and it, I mean, it didn't end up being this much of a blowout, but they have a big game against Gonzaga in South Dakota, actually coming up this weekend. Um, before kind of easing through the rest of their non-conference schedule. So um, I, I think it's still a talented enough team that if they can play disciplined basketball, they can be there. But that's uh, kind of an if right now. Yeah, and you mentioned the loss to Virginia. Baylor sits at number six right now, I believe. Is that still true, Sam? Yeah, they're, they're, they're still at sixth. Um, I'm assuming when the rankings – the new ones come out next week. Uh, that'll change a little bit, but they're, they're still pretty high up there. Yeah, yeah, but the current rankings in the top five, uh, Houston's leading the pack at number one, Texas number two, Virginia number three, Arizona number four, and Purdue at number five. So things are kind of taking shape. It's still very early in the season, but we're going to continue following some men's college basketball, and we'll even throw some other teams in there eventually once I get some more time to, to watch some of these games. And maybe as the NBA season slows down a little bit, we can cover some more. Some more college basketball. But speaking of the NBA, we're going to switch over to that. The first team we're going to talk about, well, the teams that we're going to talk about today are all in the Eastern Conference. Next week, we're going to break down some Western Conference teams. But starting us off today, we're going to talk about the Atlanta Hawks. Something that we've been talking about, you know, in our group chat and just off the off the record, we just, I don't think any of us are of the belief that this team can do enough defensively to win a significant playoff series. I don't see them as a Western Conference Finals team. So on basketball reference, when it says their offensive rating, their league rank is 22, does that mean they're the 22nd, 22 spots from number one on offensive rating? Or Yes. yes. Yeah, that's, oh. yeah. Their defensive – so the Hawks' defensive rating is number 12 and their offensive rating is number 22 right now. Are you guys seeing that? Or Yeah, so their their defense is, is – uh, a good amount better than their offense so, compared to the league right. average. So I right. thought I was looking at this wrong. 
because I've watched a lot of Atlanta Hawks games and they just get picked apart. And part of that, part of the reason for that is they try to hide Trey, Trey Young on different matchups. Like if they're playing the Bucks, he'll be guarding Javon Carter. If he's playing, if the Hawks are playing the Cavaliers, he'll be guarding Isaac Okoro hiding in the corner. But teams are good at getting that switch onto Trey Young and getting their best ball handler and perimeter scores onto Trey Young. Pretty much the only thing you can do there because Trey Young is so hopeless on defense is you bring a double team and you run into problems with this team runs into problems because when you bring that double team oftentimes Clint Capella and John Collins are going to have to switch on to another perimeter player that's faster and good at attacking the basket so not only can they attack Trey Young but when they bring that double team they find themselves in other unfavorable matchups with their uh, power forward and center position so their defensive rating doesn't necessarily reflect what I've been seeing on the court their offensive rating is number 22. Let's see. Their effective field goal percentage is almost last in the league. Uh, they're not shooting particularly well from three point uh, from the three point line. They take they actually take the least amount of threes in the NBA. They're also first in pick and rolls, and that's something that we could probably see coming with the addition of Dejounte Murray on top of the a massive amount of pick and rolls they already run with Trey Young. They're actually 30th in passes, 30th in three-point attempts, but they're first in mid-range attempts. And I think adding DeJounte Murray is a big part of that because he's one of the most elite mid-range scorers in the league. So that's right. something that we could have saw coming. But I've also noticed something that you mentioned, Jason, earlier in the season was we're a little disappointed with uh, Hunter's uh, attack mentality. He's actually taking more shots than John Collins is right now at 12.6 he's the third leading shot taker on this team by kind of a lot he's taking three more shots than or two and a half more shots than john collins so this team is kind of weird it does this the advanced stats don't really match what i've been seeing on the court but uh i'll let you take this one away jason what have, what have you been seeing throughout the the last 20 games for this team yeah i mean I, when you mentioned the the defensive uh, metrics and the stats for the Hawks that was a little bit surprising because I think Sam was also the one to bring up you know he watched the game with uh, with the heat and how bad uh, Bam tore them up on the interior and then a couple of nights later the same thing happened uh, when Joel Embiid just ate them alive you know in inside the inside the paint and so I'm with you. I, I, I don't think they're a very good defensive team. Uh, one thing that stood out to me was how much better they are actually uh, when Clint Capella is on the floor and how much of a difference he makes defensively, even though he plays, you know, only 27 minutes a game. I mean, when he's on the floor, I mean, they're, they're a markedly better defensive team. And I saw a stat you know, when, when uh, Okongwu is on the floor and he's, he's kind of the heir apparent, I mean, they were hoping that he would be able to step in and log some more minutes uh, this year. I mean, he's getting right around 21, but I think they would ultimately like to see him step into that starter role even as early as next year and move off of Capella. But when he's in the game, uh, they're just not, they're just not good enough defensively. So, when Capella is not on the floor, they're they're a below average defensive team. And when you have Capella and Trey Young on the floor, they're well below average when it comes to, you know, getting stops defensively. So those were the things that kind of stood up to me. And then I also saw they lost to Houston a couple of nights ago. And they gave up 22 offensive rebounds and 37 second chance points to a very to the Houston Rockets. Yeah, to a very, <laughs> a very, very bad Houston Rockets team. So that stat stood out to me. Uh, it was a glaring, you know, stat that stood out to me. I mean, that's that's not good when you when you give up 22 offensive boards and 37 second chance points. And then referring back to what Sam was talking about, Miami outscored the Hawks 42 to 22 in the restricted area. And uh, that's another, you know, that's another red flag when you talk about the Hawks and their inability to uh, play defense. So I'll, I'll kick it over to Sam. I mean, I know he wanted to touch on a few more, you know, Defense, glaring defensive deficiencies when it came to the Hawks as well. 
Yeah, well, they get they've a big part of their defense is they've kind of been running a, I, I, whether intentionally or not, I'm not sure, but a slight uh, old Mike Budenholzer defense where they're allowing teams to shoot 32 threes a game. And they're doing a really good job of contesting those threes or maybe, you know, early season, still a relatively small sample size. Teams might just be missing a lot. Um, but opponents are shooting less than 33% against them from three on 32 attempts, which is why their defensive rating and their advanced stats are so good. But if you look at the individual of defenders on their team, I know Jason mentioned Clint Capella, who uh, protects the rim very well, but not good on the perimeter. Um, Okongwu is, is playing Solid defense. I know we know Dejounte Murray is a great uh, perimeter defender. Other than that, none of their guys are great individual defenders. I mean, you can maybe get a few good possessions here and there out of DeAndre Hunter, or John Collins, just because of their length and and their athletic ability. But as far as defenders, they have Dejounte Murray, Clint Capella, kind of a Kongwu sometimes, and, and no one else. Um, so you look at them now, they managed to be 11 and 10, um, still while figuring out how they're going to run kind of this new new team here through the first uh, quarter of the season almost. But you get to the, to the postseason, even if they do figure out how to score more points or fix those little issues, rebound more, which I don't, you can't really just figure out how to rebound more. Even if they do, you just look at their personnel and you're wondering, it seemed like they were almost going all in to get DeJounte Murray like they were, they were thinking, oh, last year's playoff series against Miami was just a fluke. Like we saw we uh, had that run to the conference finals um, in 2021. That's where our team's actually capable of. They just figured out, oh, we got to lock down Trey Young. That's why we got DeJounte Murray. And it is just not working out how I'm sure they would have liked to see it work out. You look at their personnel. Um, I mean, they match up against, you're just looking at the East, a team like, the Sixers with Embiid, who just tore him up in a return from injury game, which usually kind of take it slower there. Um, I don't see a single guy on their team who's going to be able to do anything against Giannis Antetokounmpo in a playoff series. Uh, even the Raptors with Siakam and all the young, like six foot eight or taller guys they have, I just don't see them matching up very well with a lot of teams in the East right now. So even if they do figure, tweak a few things, get some coaching adjustments, I, I just can't see them making it past the second round of the playoffs this year. You guys did a good job of explaining, especially Sam, with the three-point, the, the opponent three-point percentage. That is a great explanation of why their defensive rating is actually top 12. And before we move off this team, I also need an answer to why their offensive rating is at number 22 because we've seen the last two seasons, Trey Young single-handedly can carry this team to a top 10 offensive rating. And I mentioned earlier, they're last in the league in passes, and that's because there is a lot of possessions. I don't have the exact number, but there's a lot of possessions where Trey Young dribbles the ball up the court, someone sets a screen, and he shoots the ball. And that's a lot of their offense. So how do you fix this team's offense? How do you get this team back to a top-10 offense? I mean, their pace isn't bad. It's eight, they're eighth in pace. I'm, I just I – don't, I don't – this team is so confusing to me. Like, Sam, how, do, how does this team get to back to being a top 10 offensive team like we've seen the last couple years? Yeah, first thing they need to do is, is not only shoot better from three, but shoot a higher volume. They're 29th in the league, three-pointers attempted this year with a volume, a, a fantastic volume shooter like Trey Young on your team. Um, I mean, he's putting up seven threes a game, so the rest of the team's only managing to put up 22, which in today's NBA is, is pretty That's crazy. Abysmal. It's abysmal. And when they take those threes, they're shooting about the same percentage that their defense is allowing, less than 33%. So that's the first spot you go to there. Um, I know Jante Murray is, a is like you said, a prolific mid-range jump shooter, but there's a reason that teams have been kind of moving away from that. It's great to have that as an option, but when that is... I mean, one of the main facets of your offense, that might be a sign of a problem unless you can play absolutely fantastic defense, which they've been playing okay defense so far. But first thing, I think they need to run more sets, four threes from everyone. That's not Trey Young. Um, and he'll get his shots. He'll get his threes no matter what, uh, especially in the regular season. But they need to be looking for other guys on the perimeter. The thing that stands out to me, the one of the other things 
uh, other than, you know, the lack of volume when it comes to shooting three-pointers, they don't get to the free-throw line. I, I mean, Trey Young is getting to the line almost nine times a game, and then you have to go to DeAndre Hunter, who's only attempting 3.7 free throws a game. So he's actually, he has been getting to the line a, a, little, a little bit, bit more, a little bit more, but he started the, the season was really I mean, slow. To start, yeah. To start this I season. mean, alleluia. I mean, we have been begging for DeAndre Hunter to become <laughs> more of an offensive threat and to become more aggressive. And uh, he has been getting to the free throw line a little bit more, but you know, other than Trey Young, I mean, DeJounte Murray's only shooting 2.5 uh, free throws a game. I mean, John Collins is only getting to the line 2.6 times per game. I mean, you have to be able to get to the free throw line uh, more frequently, especially when you have, you know, when you have big bodies like DeAndre Hunter and John Collins. I mean, Clint Capella, I mean, he doesn't, he, he doesn't even get to the line two times a game. So, I mean, it just, to me, I, I think in addition to an unwillingness to attempt a lot of three pointers. I also see an unwillingness to, you know, attack the basket outside of Trey Young. Real quick, right on the same thing Jason was saying. I pulled. I'm like, oh, just curious. Looked up last year's stats. So uh, this year they're 29th in three pointers attempted, while being 26th in three point percentage. Both terrible free throws. They're 22nd in free throws attempted. They're shooting them really well when they get there at almost 83 percent. But they're bottom third in the league. Last year, they were 11th in free throws attempted and um, were shooting 34 threes a game at a 37% clip. So two of the biggest parts of their offense from last year have just been completely cut down in going into this year. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one miracle way to solve this team is if, you know, they call up Sacramento and beg for Kevin Herter back in that trade <laughs> because that guy – for the Sacramento Kings this year is playing 32 minutes a game, shooting over seven threes a game at 45%. Yeah. So him alone being back on the roster would fix a lot of things for this team. Obviously, it wouldn't help anything on defense, and that's part of the reason why they traded him to get away from, uh, you know, just an offensive-heavy uh, roster. But Kevin Herter has been tearing it up, and I think the Hawks might rethink that trade after seeing how he's played for the, uh, the Kings this season. You guys have any more thoughts on the Hawks, or are you guys ready to move on? Yeah, let's move on. I'm good on the Hawks. Cool. So moving on to the next team we want to cover, we're going to talk about the Indiana Pacers. And this team probably had the lowest expectations coming into this year, maybe behind the Utah Jazz, but they're playing really well. Right now, they are sitting at 12-8, and 4th in the Eastern Conference. They actually just won a game against the Los Angeles Lakers that came down to the final shot. Andrew Nimhard, their second round rookie, actually dotted a three for the win with like 0.2 seconds left when the ball came out of his hands, which was pretty crazy. I watched that live. But like I said, this team had no expectations coming into the season, but they found success. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at some of their last transactions that the front office has made starting two years ago with their lottery pick in Chris Duarte. Chris Duarte's played really good. He's been coming off the bench. Or no, excuse me, he's been starting ahead of their rookie, Benedict Mathen, who we'll talk about later. But he's been great for them, great three-point shooter, and he's actually gotten better at creating his own shot this year off the dribble. So that was a good pick for them two years ago. That trade that they got Halliburton and Buddy Heald in, Buddy Heald goes under the radar in that trade because a lot of people like to focus on the Sabonis for Halliburton swap. But Buddy Heald's not just a throw-in player. I mean, he's averaging 18 points. 39% from the three-point line. He's, he's slowed down as of late from three-point land, but he started off, I think he was shooting like 45% through the first 12 games. He's not just a throw-in. That was a great player to get in that trade as well. They also got Jalen Smith last year, which kind of falls, uh, flies under the radar. He's starting at, them at power forward, and he's actually improved his jump shot, and he plays nicely next to Miles Turner. So they got him for Torrey Craig in a second-round pick, and Phoenix probably could use a player like Jalen Smith right now. So they kind of won that trade too. They also hit on their lottery pick this year in Chris Duarte, or not Chris Duarte, excuse me, Benedict Matherin. And he was their highest draft pick in the first round since 1989. And he's going to be a great player going down, like just moving forward with this roster. I mean, him and Tyrese Halliburton is such a great backcourt. 
they haven't drafted higher than sixth since, since 1989. 1989. Wow. Their, that their is owner, crazy. their owner is, is like 85 years old, has owned the team for a long time, and he's always been in more of a mindset to like just compete, even if it is just for like a an eighth seed or seventh seed. He's never really leaned into the tanking for it's been three decades yeah. since they finally decided to shift to that. But you know, it worked out for them in getting Ben Matherin. And also the trade that they they cleared up the backcourt in trading Malcolm Brogdon to the Boston Celtics. And they got a few players, notably can't think of that. Who's the shooting guard the Celtics traded in that trade? Uh, uh, Neesmith. Nesmith, yeah. Neesmith has been playing pretty good for them. Getting Brogdon out of there, not that Brogdon wasn't a good player. He's playing really well for the Celtics uh, in a bench role for them. But it cleared up more ball handling opportunities for Tyrese Halliburton. Tyrese Halliburton is probably the best young shot creator in the league. He's creating 26 shots per game, and that leads to 29 points for his team. On top of the 17, 18 points he's giving you just scoring the ball. He's also top 50 in unassisted scoring, which is really impressive for a 22-year-old point guard. And he's also uh, the 10th guard in offensive efficiency. So he is playing really well. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast. I'd just like to give a round of applause to the Pacers front office. They've made four or five great moves, winning moves in the last two years. And they're really like things are looking up for Indiana. They're going to be a problem here in the next two to three years. Yeah, for sure. I mean... I, one thing that contenders who are looking for that piece, you know, in the coming into the or when we get into the second half of the season and toward playoff time, they are hating how well the Pacers are playing right now and how it looks like they themselves are going to be a part of the playoffs. Because how nice would a guy like Buddy Heald look on that Lakers uh, team? How many teams would like to have uh, the seven-footer Miles Turner, the way he can change games defensively, and how he's been able to step out and shoot the three this year? I mean, not too many seven-footers yeah. are going to step out and shoot 40%. So, I mean, I think teams went in to the season thinking, man, wait till the trade deadline. We're going to pick up some of these guys, and they're really going to help our team. But... It hasn't worked out that way because the Pacers under Rick Carlisle have turned into a team that, like Jake said, nobody's going to want to play. I mean, they're just they're just playing extremely well. They've won seven out of their last nine games. They, they have played, I did look it up, they have played the second easiest schedule through the first quarter of the season. So that may pl have played into their successful start up in till this point through 20 games but Jake mentioned it Tyrese Halliburton I mean that guy is just changing games at the point guard position and I, I looked it up because I'm like man he's he's averaging 11.4 assists a game I, I wonder you know if he keeps this up or can push it close to 12 you know is he going to be able to finish with the most uh, with a record for most assists in a season well I'm, it's not looking like it because I forgot about one Mr. John Stockton. Yeah, the guy. I was say. <laughs> the guy had 1,164 assists in the 90-91 season, and out of the 82 games he played, all 82 games, he only had seven games where he finished out with less than 10 or more assists. Out of the 82 games, he had 75 games with at least 10 or more assists, including games with 28 and 23 assists in one game. That is ridiculous. Just crazy. So wow. I'm thinking, man, we could see a new record for assists in a season, but yeah, young Mr. Halliburton, he's got a ways to go to catch up with uh, with the legendary <laughs> John Stockton. So very impressed with what I've seen. You probably have to average 15 assists a game right. for the rest of the year to do right. that or something something like but that. But yeah, very impressed with what I've seen from the Pacers here through 20 games. And yeah, something else I'd like oh. to point out with the Pacers before you go, Sam, they have three first-round draft picks this year. Uh, one coming from the Boston Celtics in that Malcolm Brogdon trade, one being their own, and I can't remember where the, the third one came from, but they, they have three, and they're all going to be kind of late because – I don't think any of them are going to be lottery picks. Obviously, the Celtics is going to be a later pick. And I think 
They have one from the Phoenix Suns, so that's going to be a later pick as well. But come trade deadline, if they want to drastically improve this roster, they can you know, combine the salaries of Miles Turner and Buddy Heald and then throw two or three of those first-round picks in a trade, and you can get a good player for that. They can add a nice player at the trade deadline this year and compete in the East. So this team is definitely ahead of schedule. I mean, their two best players being Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin at only 20 or 22 years old and uh, 20 years old. It's just, uh, yeah, wow. This team is really impressive, and I, I'm a big fan of this team, and I can't wait to see what they can do. Oh, absolutely. Me too. And and I know you uh, brought up, you know, Miles Turner and Buddy Heald and maybe looking to move those guys around, sign a superstar next year, whatever they got to do. Uh, but Miles Turner himself has been, I mean, as if he wasn't already a big enough trade target, he has really stepped up his play this year. Um, he's featured in a Ringer article where over his from his first seven seasons compared to this year, he's upped his points per game average by almost five. Uh, he's shooting 6% better from the field, 2% better from three, and 8% better from the line. So his shooting numbers are up all across the board. Also, another thing, and I think this actually could be due to Tyrese Halliburton and how well he passes the ball, um, but in his total career, Miles Turner, when he sets an on-ball screen in the pick-and-roll, he has only rolled to the rim 54% of the time. He loved to pick and pop, loved to shoot that three off the pick and roll. And he was pretty good at it before, but this year he's rolling to the basket 78% of the time, which to the jump from 54 to 78 for a dude like Miles Turner, who, who has that three-point stroke and, and shoots from three that often, is just insane. He's, he's allowed himself to be coached and realized this is the better way that my team can succeed on offense is if I roll more. He's still getting his threes up almost for a game at um, damn near 40%, which is ridiculous for a guy that big. Um, but he really has allowed himself to take a kind of different function in the offense, and, and the Pacers are thriving because of it. And um, just speaking of Tyrese Halliburton, I know this stat has kind of been all over Instagram uh, since his, you know, he he had that wonderful, like, amazing pass to uh, Nemhard for that game winning three against the Lakers. But in his last three games against Brooklyn, the Clippers, and the Lakers, he has had 40 assists and zero turnovers, uh, which is is just ridiculous. Like that's some NBA my career stuff right there. Um, that's like there, young Chris Paul. Like, I, that's why yeah. I always compare him to Chris Paul. Like, that's why I'm saying that he reminds me so much of how Chris Paul passes the ball. Absolutely. And and it's not even, like, young Chris Paul is not a is a, is a great comparison. He's become the, really, like, the on-court leader of this team. And, I mean, all their guys, all the, the guys that are playing outside of Buddy Heald, who's 30 years old, are 26 or younger. So it's a fantastic young core. Um and I, you know, like Jason said, they have not played a very strong schedule so far. I don't know if they'll stay at fourth in the Eastern Conference the entire season, but this is a really encouraging starting point for a franchise who was expected to be in the Wembenyama sweepstakes uh, come this offseason. Yeah, and you you brought up a great point, Sam, with Miles Turner and how well he's playing. I mean, the fact that he's attacking the basket and rolling to the basket more is just this makes this team so much more dangerous on offense because he's a good inside scorer. And, I mean, he kind of got away from that in the last couple seasons because he kind of fell in love with, you know, popping for that three, which he's proven he's proven himself as a shooter. But, you know, he does fit their timeline if they want to re-sign him after this year because he is on an expiring deal this year. He's only 26. I mean, he could grow with this young core and be the starting center for this team for the next four years if they really wanted to. Absolutely. And, and he's their only rotation guy, starter, rotation guy, whatever, that has an expiring contract this year. And even if they pay him, uh, I mean, he's going to get a pretty big contract still, but they're 30 million under the salary cap right now. They still can sign, maybe not a, even if they don't make a single move and keep all their guys, including re-signing Miles Turner, they maybe can't get a top tier superstar, but they can get kind of that second tier, the all-star level in there pretty easily. So uh, they're definitely a team to watch out for here. I was just going to say, that's just a scary thought. You know, once we get into the postseason, that Tyrese Halliburton, uh, Miles Turner high screen roll. I mean, wow, that's uh, that's that's going to be pretty difficult to defend, especially, you know, if you have deficiencies on defense. 
Yeah, I mean, that pick and roll that you're talking about, I mean, and then you have Buddy Heald and Ben Matherin who are combined shooting 40% from three, camped out in the corner and wing during the, uh, when that pick and roll is being set. I mean, there's not many teams that can really handle that. Right. And yeah, they're that's, only going to get better. Deadly. That's deadly right there. So I think we covered everything we we wanted to touch with the Pacers. So we'll move on to our next team, which is the Boston Celtics, who are undoubtedly the best team in the league throughout the first 20 or so games. Right now, they're 17-4, first in the Eastern Conference. They just blew out the Charlotte Hornets. It was either yesterday or a couple days ago, but they, they dropped 140 points on them. This team isn't playing as well on defense as they were last year, and that can be explained with the absence of their starting center, Robert Williams, who is my pick last year for Defensive Player of the Year, but his teammate Marcus Smart actually ended up winning it, funny enough. But right now, this team sits at number one in offensive rating, and it's really not even close. I mean, they're number one at 120.9 offensive rating. The next team behind them is a whole five points under them in the Phoenix Suns, and it's basically a, a tie for second place between a bunch of teams. So the difference between their offense and every other team in the league is is just insane. They're putting up crazy uh, scoring games. I mean, they're all shooting the ball really well. And the thing I like about this team is, I mean, let's just compare them to the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets have a lot of specialty players, like Seth Curry is an elite shooter. He doesn't really do anything else. Joe Harris, struggling from three right now. He, I mean, you technically an elite shooter and once he gets back on track doesn't do much else but everyone for the Boston Celtics I mean guys like Jalen Brown elite offensive player also one of their best defenders like all these guys can do everything like Derek White's a great playmaker shooting well from three this year actually he's shooting 45 percent on four attempts a game which is really impressive Malcolm Brogdon I mean these guys are all they can do it all which is big factor in why their offense is running so well and big credit to uh, new head coach Joe Missoula, who's handled stepping into the head coach role very well. And, I mean, they haven't skipped a beat coming from last season. I mean, their offense looks better than it did last season. Their defense is going to get better once Robert Williams gets back into the swing of things. And I do see him coming back, impacting their offense a little bit as he's finding his uh, footing again. I, I'm sure that'll hurt their offensive numbers a little bit. But it will make them a better defensive team, so... This team is it's not even in its full form yet, and it's they're dominating every team in the league so far. So we'll start with you, Jason. What have you seen and liked from this team so far? I mean, what what what's not to like? I mean, their, their offense, uh, we talked about it uh, prior to the show, is on an historic uh, run. I mean, it's just insane how efficient they are on the offensive end. They are averaging 119 points per 100 offensive possessions. That is 2.6 more points than the highest mark in league history. I mean, think about that. They, they are so good offensively. Yeah, they, they may have dropped off a tick defensively from the team that they were last year. But, I mean, they're going to add Robert Williams. And when he comes back, the defense is going to be, you know, I would say damn near close to where they were last year. And, I mean, are they going to keep up this insane offensive stretch of basketball that they're playing? It's unlikely that they do over the 82 game schedule, but it's just crazy. I mean, this team is so efficient and it starts with Jason Tatum. I mean, that guy is having, I mean, I know the MVP race is just off the charts this year. I mean, we haven't even talked about that with how many people, you know, could win that award this year, but I mean, he's gotta be at the top of most people's lists, averaging 30, almost 31 points a game. I mean, he's shooting the basketball just so well. I mean, almost 50% from the field, 35% from three, so not, not, not tremendous from behind the three-point line, but he gets to the free throw line, shoots his free throws well, great, uh, great rebounder, great passer. I mean, but really, like Jake said, this team is so versatile. They do everything well. I mean, the entire team is, can, every single guy that is on the floor at any given time is capable of being a great passer. I mean, they had 40 assists 
in that win over Charlotte in that 35 point win a couple of nights ago. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot to like about this team. And I mean, they're just playing really, really good basketball. And, and like Jake said, when they get Robert Williams back from the injury, this team's even going to be, you know, is going to be able to take it to even that next level, especially defensively. Oh, absolutely. And um, looking at thinking of the last time I deep like watch the Celtics was uh, their playoff series against Miami and then in the finals against the Warriors of course um, and in that Warriors series the one their defense looked still fantastic I mean Steph Curry is going to be Steph Curry especially in the finals uh, but the one thing I thought I noticed with the Celtics was they just seemed to kind of have a lack of playmaker uh, when Jason Tatum was struggling um, they really didn't have anyone who would just take over the offense consistent consistently I mean Jalen Brown Fantastic offensive player, pretty good defender. He just is he, he's not the guy to lead your offense. He's a, not a great handle for for the player that he is. Uh, but this year they they made a personnel move to address that problem by picking up Malcolm Malcolm Brogdon, who uh, can definitely step in and and facilitate the offense at times as that point guard. But then also Marcus Smart uh, has taken a leap in his passing this year at seven and a half assists a game with only two turnovers he's never averaged over six assists a game in a season before this so that's really encouraging for their offense there that yes while shooting at a historic clip has really just been passing the ball super well also and it's yeah and then sam was was talking about uh, marcus smart and how he's uh upped his game as far as the assist game goes and cut his turnovers i guess that's the one thing that i see different about this celtics team than a year ago especially in the playoffs i remember against the heat and then in the finals against golden state man the turnovers and they just would come at the most inopportune times of the game and i think i can't remember how many they had in the in the uh in the in the clinching game I was it game six um or did it did it go seven I can't even remember how which game it, it was it was it only went six yeah. yeah in game six they had like 17 or 18 turnovers and every single one seemed to be extremely painful and they've cut that back to around 12 a game this year and that's the other thing that is is a reason why their offensive efficiency is just off the charts i mean they're shooting the ball well they're taking care of the basketball and you know they're averaging almost 120 points a game so i mean just just a phenomenal start offensively to the season for the celtics yeah and if you remember last year that magic number in the playoffs for the celtics was under 14 turnovers they win over yep. 14 turnovers yeah that's exactly without failure every every that's single time. exactly right and and another thing I want to mention before we get off the Celtics is the play of Malcolm Brogdon. And I've been so impressed with him. And I, I heard in an interview, I, I can't remember where it was where I heard this, but he was talking about his role with the team and coming off the bench. And he said he enjoyed being the main, the main guy in Indiana and, and starting and playing that primary role. But he says that this role is, is just so much better for him and fits him so much better because he just says his body couldn't, hold up a whole season of you know 30 minutes a game playing high usage with this team he's only had he only has to play 23 minutes a game and he's putting up 14 points on great efficiency he's shooting over he's shooting 47 percent from three this year on four attempts a game and he's also shooting 48 percent from the field and it's just really impressive and he this is just the perfect role for him and exactly what the celtics were missing last year so that wraps up what we wanted to uh, cover with the Celtics. So to finish off today's episode, I actually have a couple comparisons that I was just thinking about all day today and couldn't really decide, you know, which player I would rather have to build a franchise around and to have on a team that I'm building. So first, I want to start with the backcourts of Cleveland and Indiana. We already talked about Indiana today, but who would you guys rather have? I'll start with you, Sam. Who would you guys rather have as your backcourt right now? Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell or the younger backcourt of Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mather moving forward? Man, um, that – wow, that is, that's a tough one. If you take both at face value just 
in a vacuum right now, I would I would probably say Garland and Mitchell and Cleveland. But the way that, that team is set up, uh, I remember us talking preseason um, when we were speculating where Mitchell might go, talking about him going to the Knicks and how that pairing of him, potential pairing of him and Jalen Brunson would go. And I remember just trying to think when's the last time a team won a championship with two undersized score first guards. And I couldn't think of it. Um, And just the way that Halliburton passed the ball, like you said, he kind of plays offense like a young Chris Paul and then how well Matherin shoots the basketball. I, I think if I'm putting together a championship roster or young guys that can be a championship roster in you know, two or three years, I, I think I would take Halliburton and Matherin by a slim margin just because of how they could fit into any situation a little bit better. Um, but I think if, it, you know, if you're running like a two-on-two, I, a Garland and Mitchell I'd take as the better players, but I'd rather build around uh, Halliburton and Matherin. And I agree with you. That's a good point. Like in a vacuum, obviously, right now, if you're trying to win this season, you'd, you'd take Garland and Mitchell because they're the more proven players as of right now. But I just think Tyrese Halliburton's ceiling is just so much higher than Garland or Mitchell's. I mean, we know what Mitchell is. Garland still is going to grow as a player and get better, obviously. But I just think Halliburton is going to be, I think he's going to be a top five player in the next, you know, it, it could be as soon as next season, if we're being honest. And I just think that defensively, Garland and Mitchell are going to run into problems, especially in the postseason. Ben Matherin isn't like, you know, a lockdown defender in his rookie year by any means, but he has more size than those two players. So defensively, I think I like the potential of of Halliburton and Matherin more than I more than I do Garland and Mitchell. So I, I agree. I would take Halliburton and, and uh, Benedict Matherin to build a team around. But I'll throw it to you, Jason. How, who's your pick? Yeah, I got to agree with you guys. It sounds like a clean sweep across the board. I, I just I just like the size of Halliburton and, and Matherin. They're both 6'5", and, and they haven't even... I mean, they're young enough at 22 and 20. They're bot, I mean, they haven't even matured into their 25, 25 26-year-old selves. I mean, they're going to get bigger. They're going to be stronger. And I think... The, defensively they would be able to do uh, help you out a lot more you know than an undersized garland and and mitchell would uh offensively their games you know qu- aren't quite as far along you know maybe as garland and mitchell but you guys touched on it i mean just based on uh, on the youth and uh and, and then just their size i mean i think Matherin. He, he's he's got a long frame and I mean he's gonna get better and better defensively as as he matures and gets stronger and learns the game uh, he's he's gonna get a lot better defensively so I'd have to agree I'd, I'd take the take the two dudes from Indiana clean sweep there we all agree that you know that's the team that's those are the two guys we'd rather build a team around but I saved this one for last to end the episode off and I still haven't made my decision on this one. I'm going to wait to hear what you guys say because I'm going to cheat that way. But I'll start with you, Jason. Two young guards that are in the MVP race right now. John Morant or Shea Gilgis-Alexander. John Morant averaging 28.5 points a game. Shea averaging 31 points a game. They're both around 7 assists and five, 6 rebounds for Ja, four, 5 for Shea. This is a tough one, but I'll start with you, Jason. Who would you rather take right now? Wow, man. I tell you, when, when you take a look, you, you mentioned it, you touched on it. Man, their stats, when you stack them up side by side, you know, are, are almost identical in almost every offensive uh, category. Ah, man, that is, that, that's... I mean, Shea, Shea Gilgis-Alexander's usage rate is also significantly higher than Jaws this year since, I mean, he is the only player right. who can do anything offensively for the Thunder. Right. But John Morant has improved his jumper this year, shooting over 37% from three. Yeah, yeah, he has improved his jumper, and uh, he is, he's electric, man. Uh, his, his athleticism is, is just off the charts, man. I, I would have. I, I think I would still have to stay with Ja, just because his ceiling and upside. I don't think we've seen it yet. 
and that's scary considering how good you know he's been the first uh, three or four years of his career. That I mean, to be able to say that he still hasn't you know maxed out yet. To think about what that is going to look like in the next three or four years when he actually moves into his prime is is just scary for opponents. So I, I would have to lean toward John ja Morant taking nothing away from SGA in the season that he's having this year. And I know we haven't had a chance to talk a lot about the Thunder and for good reason because, you know, there's just not a lot of good things to say outside of SGA. But man, how different would that team have looked with Chet Holmgren this year? I mean, I think personally, you're talking about a team who may be able to get into that play-in and have a shot at getting into the playoffs. I think that's how different they would be with a Chet Holmgren this year. That's very interesting. I think I think Chet would, you know, he would go through some struggles this year, but he would also provide, you know, like two blocks a game, maybe even three with his length and on the interior. So that's, that's a good point. Uh, I think... You know, John Morant's definitely the more proven player. He's had more opportunity to win games. He, his team is just better. And, uh, yeah, like I said, he's just more proven. So <laughs> I haven't made my decision yet. I'm going to wait to hear what Sam says. Yeah, this one, I, I you know, as it, it feels wrong to even think SGA just because of how, like, you know, Jaws in the MVP race and he's – you know, laboring away in Oklahoma City on that not very good Thunder team. He's he, Gilgis Alexander only has two teammates who are scoring over ten points a game, and that's Lou Dort and Josh Giddy. Um, like that team is just is just terrible outside of him. Um, and they might have been, they would have been better with Chet. That would have been great to see. Hopefully, he uh, you know is, is good to go for next year. Um, I mean, uh, this is hard too because SJ he. He's got three inches on jaw. He's a, he is a better, better defender. defender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, man. You don't, have to, you don't man. have to hide him on defense, which is, is really no. valuable. Yeah, that is true. And now jaw's not, jaw's not like a Trey Young level defender where he's an absolute oh, liability. Yeah, yeah. Not that bad. Um, like, if you get him against a prolific, well, if you get him against a Steph Curry, Steph Curry's going to tear him up, but he tears just about everyone up. Yeah, there's no, um, there's no answer for that. Yeah, like Jaws, just he, he's he's slightly better than replacement level, but Gilgis Alexander is a really good defender. Um, and if you look at, I'm looking at these, I'm trying to think, man, are there stats that can help me do this? Um, all a lot of the normal stats outside of points per game favor favor Jaw. The advanced stats really like Gilgis Alexander. Ah, uh, I I just think by a hair, and it might be just the bias of seeing John Morant's face everywhere because he's being pushed as one of the faces of the league and rightfully so. Um, Cause not only is he an incredible player, he's just so much fun to watch. I, 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 I think just by the nature of not seeing Gilgis Alexander play really any meaningful basketball yet with any all-star level teammates, I I'm going to go with John Morant just cause I, I've seen him play. I've like at, that high level in the playoffs. I've seen what he can do. I'm going to say John Morant by default here, just because I haven't been able to see that from Gilgis Alexander yet. Um, but man, that, that was a lot. That was a, that was a good one. That was really hard. Yeah. And one other thing that's going to factor into my final decision, because I, I've, I think I've come to a conclusion here. The Oklahoma city thunder are shooting 33.6% from three, which is, you know, it's one percentage away from being the worst three-point shooting team in the league. And the fact that Shea is scoring over, I mean, he's scoring 31 points a game with no spacing at all. 31 points with no spacing, the way he gets around players, is it's similar to John Morant. No one can guard him or stay in front of him. And he's only shooting 33.9% from three. So teams don't even necessarily respect his three-point shot but he's still getting to the basket and getting to his spots. Yeah. So if he's averaging 31 points right now with, you know, the team that's around him and just the absolute, like there's just negative spacing on that team. Like there's, there's no one can hit a three. I just think that if you put a good team around Shea Gilgis Alexander, I think that we're talking about, you know, a potential MVP season, a potential 
conference finals run. I mean, because if you put even if you put one more shooter on the court with him, it, it just opened things up way. It just opened things up even more for him. So I'm gonna have to go with Shea yeah. Gilgis Alexander. I like it here. I like it. Yep, I I definitely don't hate that. Um, and just I well, you look at that Thunder team. Like I said, uh, two guys scoring over ten points a game, and that's a Lou Dort and, and uh, who is definitely not a uh, who you think of as a prolific offensive player, and and Josh Giddy, who's a who's a great young offensive, a good young offensive player. But if you take John Morant off the Grizzlies, they're probably still a fringe playoff team. If you take, I, I know I picked Jaw, but if you take Gilgis Alexander off the Thunder, uh, have they even won more than three games so far right. this year? No. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, if I'm if we're being honest, like like come on, I mean, they're they're eight and thirteen right now, still not very good. But if you take him off of there, uh, there's no shot they have more than five wins. And I think it's about time we see the Oklahoma City Thunder, you know, stop tanking because I heard this uh, <clears throat> uh, on the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst and. The other guy on it's name is uh, Tim McMahon, and he said that, you know, Shea, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is the type of player that you tank for. So you got that guy. It's time to stop tanking. It's time to start putting things together and maybe trading some of those picks and, you know, getting some help for Shea Gilgis-Alexander Gilgis because he's on an island in Oklahoma City uh, right now because, I mean, dude, I just can't get over how bad every other player is on offense on that team. Yeah, you're you're right, and they have. I mean, they're winning 38 percent of their games uh, so far through this young season. Last year, they didn't even win 30 percent. So, they have taken a step. I mean, not a not a jump or a leap by any means, but they have taken a step. And they're you know number two overall draft pick, Chet Holmgren. Uh, you know, he's done for the season. They didn't get to play a second. Um, so so they are. I mean, they're progressing there. They just. I don't think this is an intentional tank. I, I mean, they, they thought, oh, young team, maybe we can make the playoffs, maybe not. We're taking steps. They just uh, – they have nothing else to do. Like, he is he is just dragging them right now. Yeah, I think uh, – I think we gave – yeah, I think we gave five minutes more to the Oklahoma City Thunder than any other podcast in the country has this season, actually. <laughs> so, hey. Yeah, just yeah, about. unintentional. <laughs> That's all right. Wasn't even on purpose, right. but we, we got it done. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's a good way to wrap up today's episode. Thank you guys for sticking around and listening. This will go up on Friday. So have a good weekend, everyone. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks, guys.